Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, hi, and welcome to the Near and Queer to My Heart podcast. I'm your host, Amanda G., we have such a special episode for y'all. We have Judy Gron. She is a poet. She is a scholar and activist. I'm going to tell you about all the amazing stuff she's done and get to all that. But let me go through some of our business first, because we have a lot of exciting things happening at Near and Queer to My Heart. Uh, this past weekend, we were at the Louisiana Queer Conference in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We made a lot of good connects with folks, uh, with different organizations, and we're excited for that. Uh, also, it's going to be their 10th year next year. How cool is that, that Louisiana has a queer conference that's going on a decade? That was fantastic. Next week, you can catch us in Vegas at Clexicon. It's an LGBTQ convention and we'll be there we'll be doing a presentation uh we'll also be there at the exhibitors alley so come say hi and check us out and to prepare for that we've collaborated with laura sanders she's a graphic designer she's a local new orleans stand-up comic who we love she designed our logo that unicorn queer heart that we love so much so we've collaborated with her uh she's lent us some of her designs to bring uh to Clexicon, and also we've collaborated with her on her threadless page uh so check that out you can see our unicorn and some of her great designs and that's laurasanders.threadless.com and you can find on any social media we have the links up for that if that makes it easier for you so if you can't make it to vegas to see the designs let the designs come to you now our guest, and this was such an honor because Judy Grand, she has been so instrumental in so many movements, in the feminist movement, in the queer movement, in making things happen. She is talk and action. She is follow through. She is the reason I can hold my girlfriend's hand and walk down the street. She is the reason that gay marriage has passed. She and others like her have fought for our rights, for our place in society, for our voice. And I was so excited to be able to talk to her a little bit about her. She only holds over 20 awards, including a Lifetime Achievement Award from Triangle Publishing, another one from Golden Crown Trailblazers, and the San Francisco Gay Pride Parade Lifetime Achievement Grand Marshal 2014 Award. She also holds two Lambda Literary Awards, two American Book Awards, a Four Mothers of Women's Spirituality Award, a Stonewall Award, and a National Endowment for the Arts Award. And if that wasn't enough awards, the reason she was in New Orleans is because she was being inducted to the Tennessee Williams Literary Hall of Fame. And the person that inducted her, none other than Ani DeFranco. What an honor. What an honor all around, and stay tuned after the interview, because Judy was so kind and sweet to us. She recorded one of her poems for us. The poem is called My Name is Judith, and it was published in Love Belongs to Those Who Do the Feeling. And we're going to get to it. No more talk for me. Let's get to Judy Grand. We 
We are here. We're here with Judy Grawan in New Orleans. How are you doing? I'm feeling fine. Really fine. I'm so excited. We'll talk more about it because by the time this airs, we'll have done the show, but we're doing a, a kickoff for the Saints and Sinners Literary Festival at which you're going to be inducted in the Tennessee Williams Hall of Fame. I know. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. I'm how really how does that excited. feel? Yeah, no, it's that's really thrilling. I, I'm so, I feel so honored. Do you get to give a speech? Um, some short ones, I think. Oh. Yeah, yeah. That that's always been my dream. Was uh, I'm going to win this Academy Award or any award, <laughs> any award? I, even when my friends, when I get together with friends and uh, and they start dating someone new, I'll be like, when you get married, I have to give a speech at your wedding. Like I try so hard, and one day, one day, I'll reach where you are. <laughs> I will. Uh, is this your first trip to New Orleans? No, I was here way back in my 20s. This We're talking 1960s. I was here with my first lover. We drove through. Um, we had the best catfish in the world, we were told, if we would just go across Lake, Lake Pontchartrain and yeah. I'll find this place. And we did, and it was. Uh, and we went to Preservation Hall, and that, that was my memory of it. You know, was, this, is a cult, this is a cultural place. We always thought that we would move here, in fact, sometime, but we didn't. How come? Uh, oh, we went to the East Coast instead. Okay, uh, we're, we're on the East Coast. Washington, D.C. Uh, we lived, I lived there for five years, and that, that was because I, uh, I'm jumping ahead in my life story. But, um, <laughs> oh, I, I prefer, I used to, when I started doing this podcast, I would just do like, okay, where were you born? And I think yeah, it's yeah. better to jump around because everything okay. kind of ties into I each like other, yeah. and the reasons for one right, thing right, might right. lead to another. Absolutely. So I'm in Washington, D.C. because I've gotten kicked out of the Air Force for being a lesbian. I'm 20 years old. Um, and my first lover is back in New Mexico uh, in school to become a, a school teacher. And she nearly lost, you know, she was nearly kicked out of that for over uh, my interrogation in the service and so on, all of which really radicalized me. Uh, and fortunately, she came back to me. So by about 64, we were living together again for the first time really in in Washington DC and we just took a trip across the country to see my folks who were living in uh, southern New Mexico and passed through New Orleans on our way and here I am again. <laughs> Is it, I'm assuming it's different from the 1968. Well yes um, it's different because I can spend several days here for one thing because it's uh there are so many activities going on, and some of them I'm involved in. So, um, I'm having a much I'm having a, a fuller time. <laughs> I'll say that. Yeah, we were at a the New Orleans Drag Workshop has a draguation where they complete their ten week course and then they do a draguation. And you did the invocation for that last yeah, night. Yeah, last night that was really fun, and <laughs> it was uh, really heartening to me to see drag being formalized by these two great guys, uh, Gregory Gages and Vin Santos, uh, teaching younger people how to do it. They teach camp as well. So I'm really thrilled that gay culture can is getting a little bit formalized and teachable like that because I think that's crucial for people having some sense of who they are, which they're not going to get from the outside culture. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that, I mean, every performer, there was so much confidence. I saw the second, they did two shows. They did, an, I think, an 8 o'clock and then a 10.30. Yeah. I was at the 10.30. I was exhausted. But they brought so much energy because this is right. what they've worked out. And this is the, a form of expression that they've never had. Mm-hmm. That's right. And it's also, it ties in with my work. Um, you know, uh, by 1983 and 84, I was really hard at work uh, writing uh, and finishing up and publishing and promoting uh, a book of uh, gay and lesbian cultural history, which is actually also trans history. Uh, so I'll be revising it along those lines soon. But called Another Mother Tongue, and it really just caught fire with the, uh, especially the gay community, because a lot of the fellows had HIV. They felt so ex- they were being excluded by their families, the culture, the government the health services and so on. I mean, it, they were just left on their own, foundering around uh, in bunches of accusations. And Another Mother Tongue tells an entirely different story about who we are and how long we've been around and how important we've been to various cultures, including this one, as some kind of change point. You know, we, we are transfer of energy in a, in that, that switches the poles in some kind of way that I I'm feel very strongly has to do with how a culture goes about being flexible enough to change. Yeah, absolutely. And how did you research that? I mean, how uh, this is before the internet, before there was even maybe other, you know, works that were available. Like, how did you gather the information, you know, for, for that? Oh, I, you know, just the same way that I've gathered information all my life. I, I came out to myself at 15, 16 years old, looked looked the word lesbian up in the dictionary to see what that was. That was uh, back in 1955, 56. And the only information was that the psychologist had said that we were psychologically um, psychotic, you know, in some kind of way. Uh, So to do some research on my own just became really important. And I didn't get into it all the way into it until later in my life. But along the way, I was, as I say, was radicalized by what happened after the service. And, I, you know, I knew I was a lesbian. I knew that from being with Yvonne, my first lover, that being a lesbian was a wonderful thing, that we were neat people, not horrible people. And uh, we we were looking for some way to make some kind of social changes that would enable us to live together, to have a life. You know, as a school teacher, she was just constantly petrified of being found out and and losing her license and so on. And I wanted to be a poet, so I ended up uh, leaving her. But before that, we joined a society for social change for homosexuals, which was a Mattachine society that had been founded by Harry Hay back in 49, and then picked up as a Washington arm of it in 1961 by Frank Hameney, and by 64, when we joined, he was really saying that we needed to address the psychological community and and try and try to get them to change, you know. So my writing then went along those lines immediately, my very first writing, my very first publication had to do with that. And it wasn't about four years later 
that I had opportunity to form a movement of my own, which uh, we called Gay Women's Liberation. And I urged us in writing to sync up with the women's movement and be helpful to them. That is to say, make yourself useful, and then you'll find allies and friends and so on. As our parents were still terrified, socially terrified, I mean, it's unimaginably oppressive how it was in the 50s and 60s for gay and lesbian people and anyone who wanted to cross-dress. I mean, there was like three pieces of clothing. If you wore more pieces of clothing of the opposite sex, you could be arrested, for example. It was just, yeah, it was just a crazy. So anyway, there I was with uh, this movement happening and, and founded a press. And that gave me a way to, to be expressive with my work and with my poetry and with the topics that I, that I felt really pressed to do, not, I mean, for survival reasons. It was, it was not about, oh, let's do this because it's glamorous or anything like that. It was more like, how do we live through our lives? How do we survive? How do we form a community that can really be viable? And how can we make some social changes and 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 make ourselves useful to some larger causes. So feminism became one of those causes. Yes, absolutely. You know, the gay and lesbian movements, and then within that, the lesbian feminist movement that not too many people know what lesbian feminists were up to because we were secretive. But we were, we were uh, founding organizations and businesses that would enable women to become more public than they were, including job retraining and battered women's shelter in the bottom of somebody's house. You know, I've written about all of this, how we did it, who we were uh, on the West Coast in the Bay Area in, in my memoir, which is called A Simple Revolution. And by simple, I mean, <laughs> you start from what do you need to happen yeah, I was like, it sounds a lot, a lot more complicated and a lot more steps, and mm -hmm. um, but there's a lot of different pieces there. I, I'd like yeah. to to back up. So you're 15, 16. Yeah, you're looking up the word lesbian in the dictionary. Right. Are you able to come out at that time, or are you saying to yourself like, hey, I know this is who I am, but there's all these other things that won't enable me to. to That's do that. right. There's all these things that won't enable me, including that my my father wants the. Uh, once the Air Force let him know that I was a lesbian, he stopped talking to me for the better part of a decade. And we just didn't have anything to do with each other. And he had been just practically like a mother to me. My mom was different because I had taken my first lover home. And she said, you know, to me, she whispered it to me, how could I hate her? She's just like you. Aww. So, you know, she had done that conversion that is necessary for parents and community to make to see that these are all human beings, not demons, the way that, you know, some of the forces of the society teach. So that was good. But until there were parents that were able to come out themselves as friends of LGBT people, the movement kind of had a lot of force to it, but it did not have this huge communal underpinning that has happened uh, since then with the 
parents of gays and lesbians. Yeah. No, when I first came out, my mom was like, she looked up, you know, she went on the internet, Google PFLAG. It's interesting that she could go and find this resource and find other parents that also have right. different levels of acceptance, exactly. but they're willing to sit there with each other yeah. and with their children and talk it out. And that's, <laughs> you know, that's the progress that you and so many other people worked so hard for. That's right. And, and, and that those kinds of things just didn't exist or existed in such tiny pockets that there, there was no way that anybody could find out about them because there was no internet at that time. There was no easy place, you know, for my mom and dad to go to get any kind of backup for their feelings of rejection or whatever. My dad felt very rejected, I think. Yeah, or for them to even know other people that, you know, they could talk to that are, you know, feeling similarly. Exactly, yeah. So, yes, it ta- it requires communities. Uh, so that's why it's so uh, crucially important to keep having spaces. I think you, one of your questions that you mm-hmm. sent me uh, was about, do we still need queer spaces? And, you know, my answer is everybody needs spaces. Everybody needs their own spaces to gather in whatever groups are, are needing something. And then also to belong to other kinds of communities. So it's not just one community that we, I think, successfully, to have a successful life, need to think of ourselves as belonging to several communities. You know, when I came out, there were bars. In the East Coast, those bars were owned by the mafia, and they were very unpleasant. And on the West Coast, there was, starting in like 67 or something, gay-owned bars and and gay-owned business community that was supporting each other. So there was actually lesbian-owned bars, and those were much better. They were trying to function, some of them, as community centers. But when everybody is drunk, community Mm -hmm. just sort of goes out the window because you can't really talk to each other. You can flirt, you can fight, (laughs) (laughs) you can fall down drunk and throw up in the street, but you really can't form anything like the community that we wanted to have. So we competed with the bars and started our own dances and get-togethers and parties and potlucks and meetings and all of that kind of thing and used our presses and bookstores as educational centers. And it worked. So that got me started. I finally, I had been... mm, Almost, almost in the working class, <laughs> <laughs> falling out of it all the time, you know, hand to mouth, living hand to mouth, uh, no savings, whatever. Well, it sounds like you were always working, though, and you <laughs> had a goal, and like you were, because I work by day. I have a this. Is, I wish this was my job, but by day I work in a nonprofit and I make like no money, right. but I do something I believe in and I make enough to live. And yeah. I feel like you were, you know, on that same path where you were doing what you believed in, and you were also able to make enough to have a roof over your head and travel and do the things you needed to do. Well, that didn't happen for a while. In my 20s, I I became a medical lab tech, but I had lots and lots of different jobs, waitressing and fry cooking and working in a laundry and and working in a hospital and, uh, and doctor's office and so on. So getting out from under that was part of the survival tactic of how could I, as a poet who wanted to be a philosopher, you know, how could I ever have that happen? And what would my work be used for anyway? So the the combination of gay women's liberation and, and, and early feminism gave my work purpose. People wanted it. And then I realized they would buy it. 
And then we formed households, and uh, these households made it possible for me to it, to become the, exactly what you're saying, to become you know, a poet, an author, a performer, a researcher, and pay just a tiny amount of money. You'd, you'd laugh if you knew <laughs> well, how much money a room was at that point in one of those households. I don't want to know because I won't laugh. It will yeah, just no. make me cry. <laughs> yes, I, I know. Yeah, but that, but that was what made it possible. And for, for working class people to collaborate in the movement, so there were wealthy women who were ponying up a house for people to live in, and then there were working class people ponying up one hell of a lot of labor and and all of these inspiring ideas you know that that we that are sparked off when different classes of people get together it's it's pretty amazing what happened it was extraordinary so my life became i i think of it as a fast train that i somehow i got on a train and the train just never stopped going 120 miles an hour for for the rest of my life. And you're until, still still going until now. Yeah, I'm still going. Um, what made you decide to join the military? And particularly, you were in the Air Force. Yeah, starvation. Trying to be with my lover, uh, and we were of course having to be in hiding. She was in a school in uh, Western New Mexico. The jobs I got didn't pay enough. Uh, for me to, I, I could pay rent, so I had a roof over my head, so I was safe, but I could not buy food and heat. So I was working as a waitress. I was head down to 95 pounds. I think I slipped all the way to 92 pounds. Oh, wow. It's very, very skinny, and it was alarming. So I joined the service because three meals a day. And, you know, my brother had been in the service, the Air Force. It seemed like uh, a place they said they would send me to college, which was not true. I thought I would get some training or something, you know, and that I would, you know, be of use to my country as well. well that didn't work out. You were dishonorably discharged because they found out that you were a lesbian. Uh huh. It was um, less than honorable, but yes, okay. it was terrible. And and they interrogated me, and they interrogated. Uh, my, I mean, they went to my parents three two thousand miles. They went to my parents' little door, <laughs> this little cinder block apartment they lived in, uh, to inform them that their daughter was a bad person. <laughs> And how did that, how did they, what what got this all started? Because you're in the military. Are you still with Yvonne at this point? Well, no, I've had, yeah. you know, I've had to let that go in order to, to go in. And it was really the hypocrisy that got me that, that at that point in time, they were arresting anybody who went to a lesbian bar, hung out with any of the people who had already been arrested for being lesbians. And in the meanwhile they were lesbians what i'm saying is the officers the people doing the uh. arresting you know there were gay people throughout the military who were helping to hold it in place and i know that's still true because it's a perfect place to go you don't even have to worry about clothing and appropriate inappropriate clothing because it's all supplied for you so anyway i just ran into that 
and had no idea of the kind of punitive stuff that was on the other side of it. But that radicalized me. Then I, I went to, I was a mess after I got out, and I, I went to, and running around with people who wanted to be criminals, they were would-be criminals. <laughs> and um, I was worried about myself. So when a, a psychiatrist offered to treat me for virtually nothing because he was writing a book, I went ahead and did that. And his idea was to change me into a, a straight woman. His idea was that my whole problem was that men didn't find me attractive, which was a riot because I was doing everything I could to beat them off with a stick uh, so that I could be myself. So, you know, after some time with him, I, I decided that if, if that was sane, I would take crazy. I would go ahead and be crazy, and that would be all right with me. It would be yeah. better than trying to you know, change in ways that I despised. I, I didn't want to go in that direction at all. So so then it was a matter of finding out how do you fight back? You know, how do you form a community? How, because women weren't talking to each other at that time. Lesbians weren't really talking to each other. And that all changed after the movement got started because we had something to talk about, which was how do we, as a group, how do we confront the psycho, uh, the psychological uh, profession, and and the military, and the police, and the church, and and the Marxists, <laughs> all of which were ranged to say no to us in every way. And that has been; those are the slops that I have put my work in. Uh, my work fits into one or another of those ways of, okay, how, what else could we say about this that would change the story? So I've gotten into what, to what uh, we're calling origin stories, just redoing them, because that's, because why not? I, that's my job as a poet. Yeah. The word means maker, so to remake, to remake in some kind of way becomes part of my job. And so I've done that. I've done that with Another Mother Tongue, which tells a brand new story about LGBT people, uh, peoples, I should say, mm-hmm. and with, you know, just all in cultures all over the world having some kind of special provinces. And I think that's equally true, this culture. And then, you know, writing poems that include working class women their their lives and yeah I love all of them. Yeah. yeah and and then um, going on from there to just trying to redo origin stories that have left women out and have left LGBT people out and that's where I came up with this whole other theory that I call metaphoric which is a poet's word you know it's a metaphor that's turned into a form. And I did that by following the trail of, of menstruation, of menstrual rituals all over the world. And what are they made of and why do, they, why do people have them and why don't we have them? And uh, what, are, you know, what are they good for and why is menstruation so painful? Because mine was very painful. Um, and came up with this whole theory that uh, is a redoing of the origin stories that we live with 
people don't, we don't even know that we are living with origin stories that are set in the Garden of Eden or the woman who's to blame for everything or set way back with uh, the apes and gorillas in, in which only the males created the culture because all the stone tools are assumed to have belonged to them. And the women were obviously busy with the children and, and no other genders existed. You know, I mean, it's just a limited story because it was written by a middle-class European man and this was how he thought. So it needs to be revised so that everybody's included. And that's that's been my task uh, to do that. So sort of sweeping the findings of another mother tongue right on into this theory, everybody's there and everybody is equally participating in human culture and contributing to it. I uh, was reading a lot about it and I, I just found it so fascinating because menstruation is something that women experience it and we don't talk about, like it is, it is different when you were talking about different cultures. I was like, yeah, I read this book, The Red Tent, and they were talking about, you know, in biblical days, there was like the red tent where the women would go and the young girls would be so excited and they can join that. And the women were so excited to get away from the men for a little bit. And we don't have that in our culture. And in our culture, sometimes it's a thing we don't, we're not supposed to talk about. It's it's considered inappropriate or not, a, you know, a topic to, to discuss, but it is something that bonds us all. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. And, and there are cultures where they're they fall all over themselves to talk to you about it and mm-hmm. to talk about how public it all has been and the big celebrations and festivals. And one woman in South India told me that uh, when she came out at, at her menarche, her first menstruation, they held a, a party for her, festival party and procession, and 10,000 people attended it. Wow. Mm-hmm. It, it's a different so it was celebrated. world. Yes, it was really, yeah. really celebrated and considered to be uh, the power center of the culture. But that's not the whole story because all of these uh, blood rituals can be traced back to, to have ritual significance and to be somehow related to each other. And I put menstruation at the center uh, because uh, it has to have been the earliest of the bleedings, but all the bleedings contribute to who we are as a people. My idea is if we could reclaim the peaceful menstrual rituals, but in modern terms, not go backwards, uh, they help replace what we do now, which is we use blood rituals of war and, and battery and surgery to solve problems, to solve all our problems. So what do, you, what do you think that would look like today? I don't know. That's that's a that's something that has to be co-created, you know. And younger folks need to take it up. And I I don't doubt that they will because I really do think that things um, braid back and forth and go on. I don't think things disappear forever. I think they come back when they're needed. Absolutely. Yeah. You've talked about you were in D.C., and then after that, is that when you went to the Bay Area? Um, I'm trying to get your timeline. (laughs) Timeline, yeah. Well, I went back to New Mexico for a little bit. Then, yes, I did. I did go to the Bay Area in 1968. I've been there pretty much uh, there 
uh, ever since then. Is it the the movement that brought you out there, or is there certain folks or opportunities Absolutely. for writing? Absolutely. I had uh, another lover, uh, and this one wanted a revolution, and of course so did I, whatever that might mean, and, and it was not going to mean a Marxist revolution. It was going to mean some other kind of social revolution. And I didn't think that she would be staying with me if we weren't in a spot that was rumored to be benevolent to gay people. So I argued vehemently for us to go to San Francisco. And that turned out to be right, you know, when we got there. Uh, that that was the kind of opening that the... Uh, Somebody had already started the parade, so that they were very slender at that point, you know, probably 35 or 50 people, and we didn't know about them, but we did know uh, people in the community, so I could be in a gay men's writing group, I could be then finally bonding with uh, other lesbians and, and doing these households and these projects, these businesses, as I said. There was a, a bookstore, uh, Mama Bear's bookstore. I I lived in the Bay Area, um, and I know that bookstore closed in two thousand three. I was there from oh one to oh five, and and I was just reading about about that and about you had uh, some different groups there and, and and things. And I was so sad that I missed out on that. But um, I I just think spaces like that, like the Bay Area, did have you know more of those spaces where, mm -hmm. as you were saying earlier, it's not just let's all go to the bar and get drunk. Like right. we, we have these alternative spaces. That's right. And the, the women, uh, they started a bookstore called the Woman's Place Bookstore in 71. And that that closed, as you say, in 2003. And then they opened Mama Bear's uh, Books and Coffee House. And that had a tiny little performance space about the size of this table we're sitting around. Uh, but it was enough uh, for us to and I was in there a lot, doing a lot of different things, including Queen of Swords, my play. I could take that in there, you know, some whole section of it, and just ask if anybody who was sitting around at the coffee tables would get up and play some of these parts for me so I could see how they worked and were, they, were the lines really funny and could you really say them and make sense out of them and, you know, formed it up uh, into a play. And lots and lots of other things went on there, musicians and stand-up comics and people getting started with their careers. By that time, it was uh, like 1987 or something, and I was already 47 years old <laughs> and doing that, that part of my life. You've done so many things. I'm, I'm trying to, you know, yeah, figure no. out how best to, to address as many things as possible, but I'm just like... Like you have always been on the forefront of so many amazing movements and opportunities, and always publishing. You know what got you into to writing? Were you always writing, or was like after the Air Force there was this drive to put a pen to paper? No, it was the drive was really really early. So by the time I was nine and ten, I was writing poetry, and it was uh, some of it was I was writing prayers for Sunday school and a little poem that was acted out by my Girl Scout troop, and it was a very cheap art. My parents, I wanted to play the trumpet. Uh, my parents could not afford a trumpet, so I wasn't in the band, and so what could I do? And uh, we had uh, a theater department in the high school at that point, and the junior high, so I got to be in some of the plays 
I wrote a play and my friends were in it. You know, I was busy practicing all the time. So even though, uh, you know, and that helped me be a part of the society because everybody else was pairing off as boys and girls, getting ready to get married and start their families or start their whatever. And I was, I knew who I was because I was a writer. I was a poet and my neighbors said that, they always said, you're, you're, a, you're the poet, you're a poet. And uh, I just, I wore that cape easily, took it on easily. It was just thrilling. You know, with other times that I said, oh, I, I think I'm going to be a doctor. I think I'm going to do this. I think I'm going to do that. But always coming back to, no, this being a poet, and my mother would say, you've got to have a skill so you can earn a living. <laughs> <laughs> and here you are. Yeah. <laughs> here you are. I'm going to ask, and these are two very probably loaded questions, but I and I'll ask them both and you can take whatever pieces you want. But I'm wondering, you know, because you were on the forefront, like I said, of so many movements of marching and whatever, you know, needed to be done to say, hey, we're, you know, we are here and we're not going anywhere and we should have rights too. And like, to me, that's, it's so amazing that you were in that and I'm going to ask, how do you see the feminist movement today? And how do you see the queer movement today as far as progress, as far as what you envisioned in the past? Are we where you think? Are we ahead, behind, and what, and kind of what you see for the future? And we can break that up, and I will remember all the pieces so we can go back to them. Well, you know, one of the things that, uh, that my aspect of the movement did was put rape on the table as a subject because a woman named Inez Garcia had killed her rapist and, and, and there was a big trial about that. Uh, should she or shouldn't she? He had threatened to kill her, so it was self-defense. Um, and she was found uh, guilty at first and they tried to make out that she'd been crazy when she did it. And she stood up in court and said, you know, no, I was not crazy and I would do it again. So that kind of thing and other things that we had printed even before that that had rape in them, including things that I had written about and that my uh, colleague, poet, and friend Pat Parker had written about and that other women were starting to surface with those kinds of stories. Um, uh, so that started a particular kind of trend, sort of parallel to this other one, which was more oriented toward power and less toward what do we do about bad behavior of men. Uh, it's the more interesting subject to me has always been how have women contributed to culture and how can we reclaim that because those are how can we have uh, power again in the culture to be contributing toward it at this time that seems to need uh, some different sets of voices coming forward uh, and some different philosophical stances to solve the problems that we have now which you know include what I'm starting now to think of as cannibalistic capitalism, the kind of, of uh, economy that creates problems and then pays to solve them. Mm. But the, the problems never go away. In fact, they get worse. So the more that there's coal and oil burning, the more disasters they are, and now there's full employment, but a lot of that is people rebuilding their communities. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because they have flooded, they have uh, had super hyper tornadoes, they have burned down here in California. And we, 
we just simply need philosophical changes. So I'm what I'm saying is uh, the movement that seems to be a power movement, the Me Too movement, to me it isn't. To me it's an expression, and it may work for a little while, but it's now not a power place. It's not a power place what you have done to me. <laughs> that's, that's not a power place. That gets you all the power. But it's still important for that to of be course, expressed. Of course, it's important to be discussed, and it's one of the things that the movement has brought up, and I've even done some of that in my own work. But I think the more important place to go is the one that I'm talking about. We must change the stories, and it mm -hmm. takes all of us to do that, everybody. It takes you know straight white men to help change the stories. It takes everyone to do that. As when there's a change, everyone has to change, not not just yeah. the one person who says they want change. There, you know, everyone has to contribute to it. So, I mean, that's my answer to you about where these movements are. Uh, I think people, we all think, oh, we'll assimilate and it'll be okay. And I just don't think it's going to be okay. I think that every life is formed around meanings. And if you find the meaning in your life, you've won. You've won it right there, no matter what else happens in your life. So I'm an advocate for that. Uh, I think that assimilation is lovely. It's, it's a fun place to rest in for a while, but it's not the, the end. You know, there's not an end. There's, there's always needing to struggle for what's next. And to, to make the meaning out of one's life. You, you have to do that. Yeah, absolutely. One question that I'll, I'll ask, I don't know, it was just something that I found when I lived in the Bay Area is, and, and I think maybe you touched on this with the Me Too movement, is a lot of times we're all kind of, when you're in the Bay Area, like when I was there, my first semester of school, 9-11 uh, happened. So we we're all rallying and picketing and we had walkouts all the time, but we're all on the same page. Like everybody was in agreement. We weren't, we didn't have any anyone opposing us like everyone was on the same team and what was your team advocating they were advocating no war was the the big thing and the only representative congresswoman that voted against us going to war uh was in the bay area right barbara lee yeah mm -hmm. and so you know sometimes it just felt like spinning our wheels of like yeah we're we're doing this but we're here and we're localizing it where everybody's kind of you know, on the same page. And I see it on social media where people are, oh, if you don't agree with me, I'll just block you and I'll kick you, you know, and then you have everybody that's kind of in agreement and like-minded. And how are we advocating for this bigger change? So what's your question? <laughs> Being in an area where everybody's kind of, like, it's great to have, uh, you know, allies and, and everybody be on the same page, but how do you, you know, advocate change to the folks that aren't in agreement with you and have different beliefs and just flat out believe the opposite? Right. Especially in a time like now when, uh, when, when people are drawing boxes around themselves uh, as fast as they can. Well, I think that's why uh, I'm really excited about Commonality Institute getting started because they are promoting my work, which is full of ideas about commonality as ways of, um, of working across differences, ways of working for inclusion. So it, that means go looking for the people who are also ready for that. 
uh, and and find out what you have in common and and teach the ideas in some appealing kind of way that's satisfying to people and, and that conveys something and that helps to form yet another community they can belong to and one that can hear them. Yeah, I love that answer. <laughs> that is a great positive way to end our, our interview. I, uh, I want to, if you want to let people know where they can find you on the internet, in real life, wherever, you know, we'd love uh, for folks to check your work out mm-hmm. and to support all the great things that you're doing. Great. Well, I'm going to be uh, on panels and uh, other things and inducted into the Tennessee Williams Hall of Fame Sunday night panels on Friday and and Saturday and, and Sunday afternoon. I think there's an AIDS memorial. Yeah. And I'll be talking about Jean Cordova from California. Uh, so there's that. Locally, I'll be back. Locally, I will come back. Coming back to New Orleans? Workshops and stuff. All yes, right. that's planned. But the main thing is uh, look on Commonality Institute because everything is posted up there. All my future and current events, future and current works, different ideas, and some pictures. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us and for being a part of this. And um, I can't wait for all the Saints and Sinners Literary Festival events. I'm going to try to be at as many as possible. And you're wonderful. And thank you so much, Judy. Well, thank you, Amanda. My name is Judith, meaning she who is praised. I do not want to be called praised. I want to be called the power of love. If love means protect, then whenever I do not defend you, I cannot call my name love. If love means rebirth, then when I see us dead on our feet, I cannot call my name love. If love means provide, and I cannot provide for you, why would you call my name love? Do not mistake my breasts for mounds of potatoes, or my belly for a great roast duck. Do not take my lips for a streak of luck, nor my neck for an apple tree. Do not believe my eyes are a warm swarm of bees. Do not get love mixed up with me. Don't misunderstand my hands for a church with a steeple. Open the fingers and out come the people. Nor take my feet to be acres of solid brown earth or anything else of infinite worth to you, my brawny turtle dove. Do not get me mixed up with love. Not until we have ground we call our own to stand on, and powers of our own in hand, and some kind of friends around us, will anyone ever call our name love. And then, when we do, we will all call ourselves grand, muscly names, the protection of love, the provision of love, and the power of love. Until then, my sweethearts, let us speak simply of romance, which is so much easier and so much less than any of us deserve. Thank you to our guest, Judy Gron, for sharing her world with you. 
Special thanks to Joseph Fallon and Ryan Golub for your help editing and producing the show. Thanks to all our friends and supporters out there. You can catch Greetings from Queer Mountain, the live queer storytelling show, in New Orleans, Austin, New York City, and Oakland. Check out our Facebook page for more information. Also, if you like what you hear, give us a review on iTunes. Let us know how you feel. You can find us at Near and Queer to My Heart on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Near and Queer to My Heart, Twitter, Queer to My Heart. Old school email, nearandqueertomyheart at gmail.com. Hit us up. We love you. Till next time, y'all. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.